This program is about passing, a term sometimes used to define a person of color who passes as white. Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. From the 2004 Radio Curious archives, we revisit a conversation with film director Robert Benton about his film, The Human Stain. It's a movie about the life of Coleman Silk, an eminent Jewish intellectual and devoted husband, a professor of classics at a small New England college. The truth about Coleman Silk, portrayed by Anthony Hopkins, is far more complex than expected or thought to be. He hid behind a veil of lies, having masked his African-American origins in order to find freedom he thought would otherwise be impossible to achieve. But his world of deception unraveled after embarking on a romance with a much younger woman. Our guest, Robert Benton, is a three-time Academy Awards winner for his work as the director of Kramer vs. Kramer, Places in the Heart, and Nobody's Fool. His film, The Human Stain, takes place in the 1990s and is based on the third novel of Philip Roth's American Trilogy, describing the post-World War II turmoil in America. The title, The Human Stain, emerges from the idea that no matter what a person does, the human being leaves a mark on the world, whether by rage, desire, ambition, or accident, a kind of a scar, a stain that cannot be undone. For Coleman Silk, that stain is the deception and the concealment he carried for decades. The human stain is a mark we leave on everything. It speaks to the fact that we can't go through life without marking the world around us in some way. We have no choice. It's part of being human. Robert Benton and I visited by phone in the fall of 2004. Robert Benton, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you. It's good to be here. The Human Stain. Can you tell us what we can anticipate? I think the movie is a movie that at its core is about the guarantee this country makes to every human being that he or she is free to choose their own destiny. But it is in conflict often with the rights and responsibilities we owe our community and our family. And I think that comes down to the heart of it. In a two-sentence form, is a theme that appears from time to time in Roth's novels. So how would you then characterize the rights that we owe our community and our family versus our right to express ourselves as individuals? That right to express ourselves in any legitimate way that we can still doesn't mean we are free from all responsibility to the world around us. Freedom without responsibility is license, and responsibility without freedom is enslavement. 
And somewhere, it seems to me, in any reasonable and civilized society, one of the struggles we have is to find a balance of those two. In the human stain, we have Coleman Silk, in a sense, passing as someone who he is not, but then he becomes that someone. Is that, in your mind, crossing that line of responsibility? Well, I think that to spend a life focused on your own freedom without ever stopping to examine who pays for that freedom tends to lead to a kind of alienation. And I think in Coleman's life, a really brilliant young man with infinite possibilities chooses to follow the opportunity of freedom that's offered to him. And in so doing, he pays a price, and other people pay a price. And I think as he gets older, I think he begins to face the results of the choices he's made in his life. And I think there's a secret which he's hidden in his life, that he has not told his wife, that he has not told anyone, and I think that slowly caused him to live a kind of alienated life. And I think by the end, what he wants is to re-engage, no matter what the risk. The risk in this case is the risk of his life. But I think Coleman is, is in some sense an outcast, as is Faunia. I think Human Stain, for me, is a kind of model with Greek tragedy. In the beginning of the book, there's a quote from Oedipus Rex. Coleman Silk is a classics professor. He begins the book and the movie by lecturing to class and saying, Mighty Achilles, the world's most hypersensitive killing machine, who, because of his rage at losing the girl, turned his back on the very people who depended on him, the very people who needed him the most. And I think that's, in short, a very good description of the story of the early Coleman Silk. And I think he falls in love, becomes involved with a woman named Faunia. I think in all Greek tragedy, there's a, there's a crime in the past that is uncovered in the present. And I think in all Greek tragedy, the hero, even though he's done terribly, he's the hero. He's not a villain. The hero is in the end hunted down by the Furies. And if Delphine Rue is not one of the Furies, then Lester Farley is. They're both the Furies. And I think one gets him isolated from his community, gets him kicked out of college, makes him an outcast in his world, and who revives him is this woman who is herself an outcast, Faunia. Can you share with our listeners who Delphina and Lester Farley are? Yes. Delphine Rue is a woman faculty member who is the person who gets Coleman. Coleman Silk is fired from the university because he uses the word spook to describe a student who is not attending a class, who Coleman doesn't know or cannot know, is in fact an African-American student. Even though he doesn't know it, and doesn't realize it, he's still fired for violating what is now called political correctness. And Lester Farley, a Vietnam vet who is the ex-husband of Faunia Farley, who has lived a tragic life and who is a psychopath in some sense, but more than that, a deeply tragic figure because of something that happened in his own past. As the director of The Human Stain, what is the work that you have to do or the craft that you employ to bring these characters together to make the movie, to make these revelations? It seems to me my job first and foremost 
is to make these characters three-dimensional, to make these characters interesting at all times, and not to sit in judgment on these characters. When my partner David Newman and I wrote the first movie we ever did, which was Bonnie and Clyde, we, we made a decision which I thought was a smart decision then, and that's the thing that's influenced me through the rest of my life. And that is, when Bonnie and Clyde met, they would rob a bank, and they would be, sometimes they would get away with it, and sometimes they wouldn't, and they would be, in some sense, comic in trying to get, um, in trying to become criminals. But you liked them. You were in the car with them. You found them interesting and entertaining. And only after what was the funniest scene in the movie, where they've added uh, C.W. to their gang, and they were, they're robbing a bank, and he chooses to parallel park a car in the, in the midst of the robbery, does... Clyde actually killed somebody. And at that moment, we're already emotionally engaged with them and concerned with them, and we are trapped in that car with them until they die. It's too late for us to say, oh, they're gangsters. I'm watching like I'd watch bugs under a microscope. We are there with them. So what is the rule or the lesson that you learned in Bonnie and Clyde that you apply in the human stain? To always concentrate on the humanity of the characters. The lesson I learned from Bonnie and Clyde is a lesson that is to always remember the humanity of all the characters, to never look at the characters except at eye level, if that makes any sense. A metaphor for never looking down at them or looking up at them. It's important that you must really love all the characters you have in movies. They can do terrible things, but you must have some sympathy for them. That's you as the director. That's me as the director. That's what I do. The next thing I do that, that is almost as important as that is to make the narrative move and move without being self-indulgent. What do you mean? Well, to tell something once and not have to tell it 12 times and to make certain the movie's about the movie, not about the director or the cinematographer. The ideal movie for me is a movie you walk in and you sit down and you forget you're watching a movie until it's over and you wish it had lasted about five minutes longer. That, for me is the ideal movie experience, and that's the kind of movie I'd like to make. I don't want to make a movie where somebody says, God, that guy's a brilliant director, because I think you're, you're interfering with the movie. The movie comes about me. I don't want to stand in between the movie and the audience. What is the role or the activity that you find yourself being required to do when you're out on the set conducting the, the event? I believe that my job as a director is to be very wise in the people I choose to work on the film, whether it's the actors, the cinematographer, the production designer, the editor, the sound people, whoever it is, I believe I must be very careful about who I hire, who works with me. And because they're not just technicians, they are people, they should be people who are very smart and people I can trust. I'm a very collaborative director and I depend on the people that I work with a great deal. And my job is to create an atmosphere for them in which they can take risks and know that they can trust me. And I know I can get the best out of them without forcing them to do literally what I want. That they may have a better idea than I have. And I should be prepared for that. How far does that allow you to stray from the storyline or a script? It depends. If it's an original story that I've written, they can stray, as long as I'm in control of it, they can stray as far as they want to stray, and as long as I think it's good. In a novel by Philip Roth, you have to respect, you must respect Philip Roth. They must, they have freedom 
but their freedom is always to remember that this is a novel by Philip Roth, and in what we did in the film is continually keep the book in front of us and return again and again and again and again to Philip Roth's words. Yet, you mentioned that the film is written in the camera, not on the typewriter. Yes, but in a sense, what he says, you have to, you have to find a, a way of doing that visually. What I guess I'm talking about is Philip Roth's voice, and in, in this case, I meant his literal voice. Uh, the other thing I think is the voice of the film should always bear in mind the voice of the author of the book, but it may not always be exactly the voice of the author of the book. And in this film, we took out a lot of the material in the book that dealt with political correctness. Now, that's not because I don't have an opinion about it. It's because I don't have time in a movie to do every part of the book. And I chose to concentrate on the on the story of Coleman Silk and Fawnia, that story that he describes not as his first love, not as his great love, but as his last love. That had a great poignancy to me. And also to talk about the young Coleman and what happened to him that imprinted itself on the older Coleman. In other words, the critical decision in Coleman's path happened in the story of the young Coleman, but it affected the older Coleman to the end of his life. Can you give us a sense of what that decision was? I think the decision that the young Colvin made was to follow his own star, regardless of the cost. I think the decision Colvin made was to turn his back, as, as it says in the book, on the very people who depended on him, the very people who needed him the most. And for what he believes are very legitimate reasons. I mean, some people may think he's right, some people may think he's wrong. That's, I don't care if they agree. One of the things I thought was the most interesting thing about making this movie was making a movie that didn't end with an answer, that ended with a question. And as I've gotten older, the questions have seemed more interesting than the answers. I want to ask about what those questions are and, and how you create them. But first, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with three-time Academy Award winner Robert Benton, who is the director of The Human Stain that is recently released by Miramax on the big screen. Robert, the questions are more imperative than the answer. How have you come to that as you have gotten older? Too often I find the answers, Pat, and that the answers are trying to avoid the most profound part of the question. Too often I think the answers we make are simply placebos. One of the things I like about the human state is you walk out with a lot of questions. What are the questions that we walk out with? Why did he do what he did? How did it affect his life? Was he right to do it? Was he wrong to do it? What was the nature of this love story? What was the world like at that point? It's a story that begins in the 40s with somebody doing something that is, as one of the characters said, inconceivable these days. But it was necessary then. What is the cost to him? What is the cost to us all? If, if we identify with him and we say that we have done this, we see something of ourselves in him, then we must hopefully begin to ask ourselves some questions about our own life and about our own culture. Do we live in a culture that slowly is turning its back on responsibility to community? And what are the lines that should define it? And as I said before, when does responsibility become slavery and when does freedom become license? 
In your personal experience, having been a director of movies, what's your answer to that question? Oh, I think that freedom comes with a built-in responsibility, and I think it's a responsibility that deserves serious consideration by each person, that it doesn't mean that you accept a kind of general morality that you can't live with, but you must. In a sense, you must find the answer yourself, but you must not take freedom as the end result, because freedom is, is only good when it's tied to responsible activity. And remember, the use of Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky scandal is not there by chance. In the front part of the in movie. In the front part of the film. And I must say, Richard Russo, a friend of mine who, who is an extraordinary writer and a good friend, has, often says there is the law of unintended consequences. And I think when they say at the beginning, the film begins in 1998 in what Nathan Zuckerman calls the summer of sanctimony. And when everybody was outraged about Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, he says at some point between the end of communism and the horrors of terrorism, we were absorbed by the scandal. And it seems so naive and so innocent to me now. And watch audiences react to it in light of what's happened since then, remembering that this was written before 9-11. Changing the topic, you were a person who was born with dyslexia. And I'm interested in how your experience with that as a younger person and learning the tools that are necessary to cope with dyslexia have affected and developed your skill as a filmmaker and a director. I think that any time that you are born with a disadvantage, you're given a gift. And the gift is you cannot think of yourself as just an ordinary person. You have to think of yourself in a kind of specificity. When I was, I don't know, the, the third or fourth grade, I was given the first book. There was a book, in my terms, that book that was all text that didn't have pictures on every other page. And I was so excited to read it. I was so excited at the possibility of it. It seemed to me so extraordinary. And I remember the room. I remember sitting there, and I remember opening the book, and I don't know how much time passed. But I remember when I closed that book, I knew with some absolute matter-of-fact objectivity, no emotion, that I was stupid. Now, I accepted it. I also, in a way that I didn't understand, enraged against it. But I knew I was not like my friends who could breathe through books like that. I knew I had to find some other way to survive. And I did it because I could draw, and the drawing could hold my attention. And I developed that as a fanatic thing. It was all I could do, but I did that well. And also, I could hold my attention by going to movies. So I was very lucky to have a father who would come home from work. Instead of saying, have you done your homework? And I was a terrible student. I spent almost every summer, it seemed to me, in summer school. He would come home from work. Instead of saying, have you done your homework? He would say, you want to go to the movies? And of course, I would go. An enormous amount of what I learned about stories and about characters, those things about life that most people learn from literature, I learned from movies. I was virtually unable to read until somewhere in puberty, and I, I began to develop strategies about it, and it began chemically to, to disappear. And by the time I was in college, I could get through an English course. I failed creative writing, but I could, I could make good grades in college. I developed ways of dealing with that. But I learned about storytelling from movies before I learned about it from 
books. And it turned out to be a huge gift because it became my primary source of narrative. And as Robert Altman said, movies are written in the camera, whether it was 1945 or 1998. And I began to learn the way you learn things by osmosis without being taught something in a film school, just to learn by watching enough and watching enough to see if you liked it, why did you like it? To see it again until you began to understand what it was that so caught you about it. I was given a great education by my father. That's looking at the same movie multiple times. And when I was in high school, I went with my father to see a movie called Asphalt Jungle. And it was one of the first films that John Huston did after he got out of the Army where he's in a documentary unit. And he, he did the film on Anzio and, and the film on Wounded called Let There Be Light. And he brought some of that documentary work into the beginning, the first five minutes of the asphalt junk. And it was neorealism. And I'd never seen anything like it. And it was like a, an incredible revelation. And then after that, it goes back into being a typical uh, John Huston movie. And it's still a, a wonderful movie, one of the best Houston movies I know of. But I remember sitting through it with my father. At the end of the movie, my father said, okay, let's go. And I said, no, I'm going to watch it again. And fortunately, I lived in a small enough town that I could walk home. But I couldn't leave that movie. I had to go back and look at it again. When I saw Singing in the Rain, it was like a watching a miracle. I knew enough about movies to know I was watching an amazing movie. It wasn't just that it was fun to watch. It was a brilliant movie. When, when I came to New York... I became obsessed with a movie called Place in the Sun, directed by George Stevens. I saw it 15 times. In Place in the Sun, there are a lot of times where the film echoes itself. You plant something in an early scene, and it echoes it in a later scene, and that adds a kind of reverberation. Again, it goes back to the Altman notion. The image has a power to evoke if you see it repeated in some way. I don't mean repeating the scene itself. For instance, in... In Place in the Sun, in, in the opening credits, you see Montgomery Clift hitchhiking on a highway, and a car, a big white convertible, speeds by, and in it is Elizabeth Taylor. Now, you don't notice it the first time, but the second time, you damn sure notice it. Later in the film, when, when Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters go to this city hall to take out a, a marriage license, and his whole life is crumbling around him, and they get into an argument. The argument happens in front of the courtroom where he's tried for her murder. And you do notice that when you're watching it the, the first time. You do notice that echo. Where do we see these kinds of things in the human stain? I think that there is... Um, I'm going to try to tell this without talking about the, the secret. Uh, there's a moment early on in the movie where uh, Coleman Silk says to a lawyer... The older Coleman success to a lawyer, I never want to see your lily white face again. And late in the film, in a flashback to the younger Coleman Silk, you see his brother say that to him. And you know that that moment the brother says it to him, you know he's carried that with him his entire life. Although you're seeing it not in a linear sequence. I found it moving in the book, I find it moving in the film. When young Coleman is in love with this girl, and she's going to leave him. And she says, I can't do it, Coleman. I, I love you, but I can't do it. And he grabs at her hand as she goes by, and she pulls away from him. And it's in the lower right-hand corner of the frame. In the scene with his mother, late in the film, as she's walking away, she grabs him into the same part of the frame that it echoes for me. Now, maybe nobody else will notice it but me, but for me, it's necessary 
to build in those echoes because I think they they make the film hopefully richer, denser in the right sense of being dense, not in the sense of being you know impenetrable. And those are the kind of echoes that you structure as the director. In this, it seemed to me the material called for it because you were dealing with the effect of the present and the past, and the past and the present. There's a moment when Coleman says to Fania, "Dance for me," and she does. And moments later, you hear the young Coleman say to Stina, the woman he loves, "Dance for me." And those echoes. It is the intertwining of the past and present, and I am old enough to know that that's in fact happens that you carry the past with you. And that part of it mattered to me to show that. Well, Robert Benton, where are you going from here? Do you have next projects in mind? To Los Angeles, actually. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm doing is I'm working on a project with Scott Rudin that's an original screenplay that somebody else has done that I'm seeing if it's possible to adapt it in a way that works for him and works for me. And I'm finishing up an adaptation of John O'Hara's appointment in Samara. Well, Robert Benton, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you. I've had a great time. This has been a very good talk, and I I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, And before we close, I'd like to ask you to recommend a book to our listeners. I would recommend uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night, which I think is a splendid book. And the author is? I don't ask me. I don't know. And I would also recommend a book that's in in reprint now called The Sargosa Manuscript by a man named Pataki. And uh, the edition I'm reading is, is a Penguin edition. Robert Benton, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Robert Benton is the director of The Human Stain, a movie based on a novel of the same name by Philip Roth. The books that he recommends are The Curious Incident of the Dog and the Night by Mark Haddon and The Sargosa Manuscript by Jan Bataki. has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541, and the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. 
Thank you for listening.